This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is listener supported, and we need your financial contributions to keep the show going. Head over to forthewild.world to make a tax-deductible donation. This episode is in collaboration with the Bioneers Conference, where Candy will be giving a keynote address this October. I also have the pleasure of leading a panel called What Value Emotions Towards Social and Political Healing. I hope to see you there. The silence is broken by somebody crying, trying to be heard. Never a word Always the attitude Sort out your own Always alone Wishing for something The world is denying Out in the wilderness Somebody's crying Somebody wishing for something to happen Wishing to tell, wishing to help Someone was listening, someone who cared Never despaired, someone to lean on And someone to trust Who needs your assistance and finds your disgust Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Candy Mossett, Mandan Hidatsa Arikara from North Dakota. She has emerged as a leading voice in the fight to bring visibility to the impacts that climate change and environmental injustice are having on indigenous communities across North America. After completing her master's degree in environmental management, Ms. Mossett began her work with the Indigenous Environmental Network as the Tribal Campus Climate Change Coordinator, engaging with more than 30 tribal colleges to in-state community-based environmental programs, discuss issues of socio-ecologic injustice, and connect indigenous youth with green jobs. She currently serves as the IAN's lead organizer on the Extreme Energy and Just Transition Campaign, focusing at present on creating awareness about the environmentally and socially devastating effects of hydraulic fracturing on tribal lands. Her local work is complemented by international advocacy work, including participation in several United Nations forums and a testimony before the U.S. Congress on the climate issues and its links to issues of health, identity, and well-being on tribal lands. Well, thank you so much, Candy, for joining us today, and I look up to you so much. It's an honor to have you with us. 
Thank you. It's really good to be here with you. I've missed you so much <laughs> ever since you left Standing Rock is when I think it might have been the last time I saw you. And I've just um, really appreciated all you did to support us out there. It was really great. Thank you. Yeah, those were incredible times to share together. And you've been at the forefront of so many complex issues. And I'm just truly appreciative of your tireless work in bringing visibility to the impacts that climate change and environmental injustice have on indigenous communities worldwide. And, you know, your home is in North Dakota, and it harbors the Bakken oil fields where hydraulic fracturing operations extract massive amounts of gas from underlying shale deposits and where the Dakota Access Pipeline stems from. So you've felt the depths of devastation experienced by people at the source of oil extraction, as well as understanding the far-reaching impacts that follow the path of oil from source to market and then beyond, you know, from the heavy machinery that is almost certainly built by the hands of slave labor to the cascading ecological consequences that come from fracking, such as the toxification of our sacred life source, which is water, not, and not to even mention the millions of cubic feet of gas flares released into the atmosphere during standard operations, no one is left unscathed by the trauma of extractive industry. And so I think while a greater awareness surrounding the brutality of corporate oil extraction has grown in light of Standing Rock, most of us still only hold a limited understanding of fracking. It's connectivity to other extractive industries such as the tar sands in Alberta or just the deep ecological and social consequences it reaps in countless communities. I'm wondering if you could take us beyond this surface understanding of fracking and share with us parts of the story that are left untold. Sure. So usually when I speak to people about the dangers around fracking, I let people know that, it, yeah, of course, it's actually really horrific for the environment. It's not something that's even a question or should be a question about the millions and millions of gallons of water that is consumed, you know, six million gallons per frack. And each rig, each oil well that you might see out on the landscape can be fracked upwards of 30 times at the most. And so we're talking about my reservation that has, I think, 1,200 operating rigs and wells right now. So you imagine the millions and millions of gallons of water. You imagine the air pollution from all the flaring. A lot of times people don't understand that in North Dakota, they're not interested in the natural gas. They're interested in the oil. This is why they're fracking in North Dakota. The natural gas is actually a byproduct of the industry. And so they're flaring most of it into the atmosphere and have been doing so for 10 years. It has been a decade that we have been trying to regulate, at the very least, regulate these industry and have been pushing for stricter methane rules so that this can't happen, you know, anywhere else in the world, you can flare for a year maximum, maximum. Well, they've been getting an extension every year for a decade <laughs> to continue to be able to drill. And our babies are sick. We've seen increases in asthmas and in this RSV, which is an upper respiratory problem in your system that causes you not to be able to breathe, where babies have to be like put on machines so they can breathe. 
and people, you know, in my family and my communities are always complaining about colds lasting for a really long time or sinus problems, you know, trying to figure out what's wrong with them, not necessarily associating it with the fact that they're living right in communities where we don't even have setback regulations on our reservation, which is called Fort Berthold in North Dakota. It's also the sweet spot of where one-fifth of the oil is coming out of the Bakken is from our reservation. And there are no setback requirements from lakes, houses, homes, buildings. There's a couple of rigs, oil rigs that are right behind an apartment building where people live with kids, where they play and ride their bikes right there. And so all of the environmental impacts are horrific enough, but people don't necessarily hear about the social impacts that happen as a result of fracking. Ever since this industry came into our community, it has flipped our lives upside down and really destroyed a lot. I mean, it's really hard to even talk about because I have to recall all of the really horrific things that have happened, probably starting in 2008 when a friend of mine was killed by a semi-truck. Uh, we saw an exponential increase in truck traffic because that was how they were delivering the fracked water, the clean water, and the oil, the semi-trucks. And they still continue to do that. They just had control over the roads. There was no, it was like free reign for semis. You know, Cassie was the first person I can recall that was killed by a semi-truck who was illegally hauling because his record log showed that he was over his time for how many hours he was supposed to be working. And that happens often in the industry because it's it was it's a rush to get it in, get it out, get it done as quick as possible before anything can be regulated. You know, make money, make money, make money at all costs. And in this case, it was at the expense of a 23-year-old's life. And so we remember Cassie and still get really emotional about her being killed. And nobody was held accountable for that. And it's happened numerous times since then that people have been killed in accidents. I think the number is around 47 people just on the reservation that have been killed since Cassie. So since 2008, running on si alongside the road, doing your morning run, driving kids to school, little kids have been killed. Whatever the accidents, they're all involving trucks and semis. And that's just the semis. This just doesn't include the man camps that started springing up all over the place, which literally are camps of hundreds, sometimes thousands of men because they come from all over the world to make money, to work in this oil industry. And so they didn't necessarily have any place to live when they first came to North Dakota. And they started just living in, in RVs, in RV parks, and maybe like little tiny FEMA trailers or sheds. Some of the companies provided housing. Some of the companies didn't provide housing. And so the rents in North Dakota started going up. You might be paying $500 a month, one month for a one-bedroom apartment. And even that was expensive. But the next month, it would be $2,500. And if you couldn't pay, you were out. And that happened to a lot of people literally getting displaced from their homes. Not just average, ordinary people, but elders. Elders housing where they have 
a complex for elder people. They jacked up their rent, and if they couldn't pay for it, they were out on the street. We had people living in the casino because they didn't have anywhere else to go because the oil industry took over. Trailer courts, whole entire trailer courts were displaced because on the reservation, we don't own all of the land, even though it's within the boundaries of our reservation. There's trust land that's held in trust by the federal government. There's fee patent land, and then there's tribal Alati land. And so the only land a native person actually owns is the Alati land. But a lot of the land that's held in fee, or that's fee land, is owned by non-native people. And uh, unfortunately, three of the trailer courts in my community were on fee land, and they were all forcibly removed to make room for oil workers to live. We had a fight just to get people to be able to move to a place where they can continue to live. And these are entire families with children. They had to be in school. And they basically said, well, you know, sorry for you. You got to get off the land. You have, you know, 30 days. We had to fight for extensions so that people could actually move. We had to fight to get help moving trailers or getting new trailers because some of them were so old they would just fall apart. And it just continued to happen. And the sickest one was right on Main Street where I come from, this community called Newtown, which is about 1,200 people, which is our largest community on the reservation. They put a big fence around it with an electric gate, and you could only get in or out if you had this little key card. You know, even though it's on the reservation, it's just right in our faces. And with those man camps came horrific, wicked violence, not only against women, but against children, against boys, against other men in our community. I can't even begin to describe how disturbing it's been this last decade. I lost a cousin who was at a bar, a local bar, and he offered to give a guy a ride home, a guy in the oil industry. And this guy ended up stabbing him in the heart. He set his truck on fire. And when they caught him, they said, oh, I think he was trying to make a pass at me. And so he murdered him. And it wasn't just that. I mean, two streets up from my mom's house in Newtown. So she's on 4th Street. This was up on 6th Street. There was like a whole police standoff with these people that were in a house I think they must have been on drugs and they were shooting at the police and there was an entire standoff for a few days before they finally got him out of there they had to like take a tractor and like knock it into the house this is just like a little community where the worst thing that used to happen was us at Halloween time egging our teachers houses like that was the crime and vandalism that occurred prior to the oil boom and now people are being killed. There's there's car chases going right through our main street where police are actually chasing high-speed chases of people because of the drug activity, too. Whenever industry comes to a community and men come to work or, or some women, they have this money. And it's a lot of money. The crime follows the money. The drugs follow the money. So we have a group called MS-13 which I remember watching a documentary about years ago, thinking, oh, my God, they're really scary, you know. That's something that only happens in the big cities. That's something that is only in Los Angeles or something, you know, or in the prison systems because they actually are highly organized in the prison. They started in Venezuela. And now, because of all of this 
we have MS-13 gang members in North Dakota in my little tiny community pushing heroin on people. And heroin is something that we never had to deal with ever before in our communities. And a lot of the violence had to do around that drug violence. And people in my community, young girls, got addicted to heroin and had no services to help them. There was already too much going on with our local police force. There wasn't enough police to deal with all the crime. And so whenever somebody got hooked on drugs, they thought, well, you know, they're just a drug addict. It's their fault, whatever happens to them. And in the past few years, I've buried two friends of mine that had overdeed on heroin and didn't get the help that they needed to get off of it. And Ashley was only 26 and Lisa was my age and has left behind five kids. And there's no justice for them. It's just, oh, another one of those those druggies. And so I, my cousin, my cousin Daniel, he disappeared in November of 2013. He was with two known gang members of MS-13 the night he disappeared. And... When we couldn't find him for months and months, they finally began to do an actual investigation. They finally actually began searching for him months later after he had gone missing. And he was found in the spring under the bridge in the water in the lake um, by some fishermen. They had to have dental records to identify his body. But because there wasn't any gunshot wounds or stab wounds or anything like that, it was considered an accidental drowning. And the case was open and shut, and they never did find who did it. They never found what happened, what actually happened to him, why he disappeared that night. That's It didn't go any further. He was murdered, and my family will never know why. And it's frustrating, and it's hard, and it's like stuff that you cannot even make up <laughs> for growing up in a small community in North Dakota. It's just something that you would think you would see. On, on a TV show, like a really violent TV show. And in fact, they have made TV shows about the incidences that have occurred. There was one called Blood and Oil that was based on North Dakota. And I think it was on for like one season because it was so ridiculous. They tried to film it in Utah, but based on North Dakota. And we have no mountains. <laughs> and so people were like, this is just ridiculous. But people thought, oh, my God, this is so far-fetched. That was the ratings that the movie got. Little did they know that that movie was based on actual events that had occurred. We had a tribal chairman, Tex Hall, that was our former tribal chairman before our current one. And he signed all these leases and signed all these deals and let the federal government rubber stamp that, yes, this industry and this drilling is in the best interest of all the people. That's all it took was one rubber stamp from the federal government to drill on our lands. Well, he also, in a conflict of interest, had oil interests and was trying to work with a business partner in developing oil. And that business partner ended up being a horrific human being that is now behind bars because he actually ordered the murder of two individuals that were carried out. You can read about it in the newspapers what happened with Textall and his cronies is what we call them. It started, there was a kid that went missing. His name was Casey Clark. And it started to become the norm. We actually had a coalition of people that were looking for missing people because so many would just disappear. 
So Casey Clark was a non-native man, kid really, that went missing in 2012. And, you know, we knew about it. We knew that people were searching for him and we tried to help search for him. This all happened on the reservation. And it turned out that somebody ended up getting shot in another state. Oh, gosh, I'm trying to think of where it was in Washington. He got shot and killed. And so the investigation out there, and this is this is um, the actual company was called Blackstone. Anyway, the guy got caught and the, the guy ended up saying, oh, it was this James Henriksen. And James Henriksen is the business partner that was in business with our tribal chairman at the time. And they were trying to unite Blackstone, which is what Henriksen owned, and Mahishu Energy, which is what our chairman owned. Combine those two businesses together. And this Casey Clarkson had a stake in it. I believe it was a $400,000 investment. Well, it turned out that Casey Clark didn't want to be in the business anymore. And so they actually killed him. And it all came out after the person in, Was- in Spokane, Washington, got shot. And the person got caught. And he said, well, I was hired to do this. And the same person was hired to kill Casey Clark. And Casey Clark was, I think, 23 years old. And I don't think that they ever found him because where they originally buried him, somebody must have moved him because they went to dig it up and they they didn't find him there. And the guy said to his family, you know, in court and everything, well, how did Casey actually die? And he said, we hit him in the back of the head with the metal rod until his head was soft. And that was in a, in a shop on the reservation where I grew up. And these guys were working with our chairman, our former tribal chairman. So these two people committed murder. And they were basically found guilty over the last few years. Henriksen's wife turned him in. Like, she's the one who signed all these contracts to make it happen. So to sum up this story, basically, this whole blood and oil movie that came out was based around this disgusting former chairman of ours who was working with people to put together a company and people ended up dying as a result of the money associated with it. And it stemmed from the reservation I grew up on to go through all of these kind of things. Like people don't talk about the social impacts as much as they do the environmental impacts, which are, Equally devastating, in my mind, you can see the devastation and the social impacts with the increases in the violence against our women, against our children, against anybody associated with money in the oil patch. People are literally willing to kill for that money. It's all on record. You know, it's not something that you have to take my word for. You can just do a simple Google search and it'll bring up the entire hellish story about what happened and and what we've been fighting against also on a reservation it's so much more difficult because we are supposedly sovereign nations unless we need help when we need the state to help with our roads and our infrastructure oh you're sovereign nations all of a sudden but when it comes to the oil they want it and they want to take as much as they can in fact the state of north dakota has gotten over a billion dollars in taxes alone just off of what's come out of our reservation, over a billion dollars. And none of it goes back into the infrastructure for us on the reservation at all. 
And the state itself is a fossil fuel state and has been for several years. I mean, we have on top of the oil extraction, seven coal-fired power plants that have been polluting every single bit of our over 11,000 miles of rivers, lakes, and streams for years. We have fish advisories from the North Dakota State Health Department telling us how much fish you can consume per month and how big they have to be. And you have to throw the big ones back, which, of course, nobody in my family does. The bigger the fish you get, the better. And so all of these things that are associated with cumulative impacts, because we already have a high incidences of cancers and asthmas prior to this boom, because of the mercury contamination, because of previous oil booms that were conventional oil, not fracked oil, and because of the nation's only commercial-scale coal gasification plant, which exists in North Dakota. They also have uranium mining. We have over 8,000 miles of underground nuclear warheads stored throughout our state from the Minot military base. Everything bad that you could imagine, it's there now. The saddest thing about everything is that because it's been a whole decade now, People have become apathetic to it. Like they're used to seeing flares all over in the night skies. They're used to seeing oil rigs. They're used to seeing oil workers and strangers in our community. It's really sad that everything feels so different. It's not really about the culture anymore. I mean, even if you go to the local powwows, the annual celebrations that we hold in our different communities, there were a couple of times where in the arbor where we danced, there were big, big signs like Hella Burton sponsored by, you know, and we actually had to fight against our own council and say, how could you do this to us? And why would you sell us out? You know, other tribes fight back against him. Why won't you? And they say, because they tell us they're going to come and take it anyways. We might as well get money. And in the past, when they've come, when the government or the industry or anybody has come here and said they're going to do something, they do it. And they say they're going to take something away from us, they do it. And we're tired of it. We're tired of being defeated. It was like a, if you can't beat them, join them type of attitude. And that's where we are right now with our waters being polluted. My brother called me just the other day and left me a message early in the morning and said, sister, I just was uh, going to work today. I drove across the bridge and they saw something on the top of the water. It looked really bad. It was an oil slick or an oil sheen. It looked really weird. It was a weird color. You better call fishing game. You better find out what it was. And I tried to make some phone calls. I tried to find out and nobody knew anything about it. And that later on that day, it was gone. And I haven't heard any kind of follow-up from what happened to it. And it's really hard because I've seen these blue-green algae blooms and different things. I'm not saying that that's what that was, but they're toxic. And they've only increased and been horrific in our lake ever since the oil industry started with the chemicals that they're putting in. And so I think that one of the worst things is that there's nobody in our state that we can turn to because they're all for the industry, not just our tribal council, but the state and then the federal government, especially now in this administration with number 45, oh my God. And so that's just the extraction zone. I'm just telling you about where the oil for the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Bayou Bridge Pipeline, all these bomb trains is coming from. That's the extraction zone. And then you have all of the symptoms associated with that, that snake their way out in the form of bomb trains, in the form of pipelines that leak and burst. And they take that negativity 
and that death and that really horrific everything, they take that with them right down the pipe, right down the rail, right down the truck tracks and affect and impact other communities. I mean, there was a train that came from the Bakken and that went into Canada, La Magnétique, I always say it wrong, but 47 people were killed when that train blew up because this oil in the Bakken is also a lot more prone to sparking and to starting on fire. It's a lot more dangerous than conventional oil. I can't find my words because I'm having a hard time as we talk about these things, but it's just the oil is definitely more prone to being volatile. There you go is the word. And it's happened all over the country now where people have been fighting, saying they don't want the trains they don't want the trucks. And so this is pipelines are the latest brainchild because people argue that, oh, it's the safest. When in reality, it's not the safest. It's just the most out of sight and out of mind. There's accidents with oil no matter where you go, whether it's train, truck, pipeline, or boat. Those are the four main modes of transportation. And they all have accidents and that all impact people they all impact the environment and oftentimes what what I talk about is why do we have to take it out in the first place and that's why we work on this campaign that's called the keep it in the ground campaign that we don't need this oil and anybody that looks at any Native American person and says you need oil because you've always had it is off their rocker they don't know what they're talking about because we have lived for thousands of years without them and have been much better off than the last 200 years of this so-called industrial revolution where we've seen horrific climate change-related events that all have to do with human-caused problems and anthropogenic. Humans have been the cause of global crises, the temperatures rising. And so what are we dealing with right now? Hurricanes and strong hurricanes. I have a bunch of friends right now in the Gulf Coast region that need relief, that whose houses are flooding again, who need help and support. There's over 6,000 people right now in Texas alone that still need help that have been displaced from their homes. And you can look at a larger scale picture and see that there's also massive flooding happening in Asia. And all of this is happening while I sit here and look out my own window. Here, I'm in Montana. And I see haze-filled sky because we're burning up. The state has at least 25 fires burning. That's just Montana. That doesn't even talk about all of the wildfires burning in Oregon and California and Washington. And that is what climate change looks like. Droughts in one area. Flooding in another area. And the scariest thing for me is that this stuff has been prophesized over 300, 400, 500 years ago. They talked about a time that would come when we would have to make a decision about which path we were going to choose. One path would lead to the road of renewal and hope and a future for our children. And another path would lead to death and destruction. And it's like right now we have our foot on the wrong path. And now we have this Trump as the president and you know I I don't know there there's even biblical prophecies about the antichrist and I sit here and I wonder is that him because that's how bad of a person he is and he's running this country 
And it's like, we've gotten, have we gotten so out of control that we allow these things to happen? But then I look on the upside of things and see how it's brought so many more people together that are like-minded to fight against the broken system because that's what it is, the system that is broken. We have done too much damage to ourselves as humanity and, and, and people argue with me all the time. They say, well, do you drive a car? Do you fly anywhere? How do you get there? And I have to defend myself and say yeah I drive a hybrid vehicle that I had to pay an arm and a leg to afford just because I'm trying to do my part and trying to do better and it shouldn't be you do this you do that and all of us squabbling against each other because that's what the industry wants the industry is the problem that needs to be blamed because they know what they're doing and how it's impacting our climate and in people but they do it anyways because they're making millions and billions of dollars off of an industry that destroys. And the ultimate thing that it comes down to every single time is money. When are they going to realize you can't drink oil and you can't eat money? Well, what we're fighting for is to make sure that it's not when it's too late. Candy, thank you so much for sharing these devastating stories and for being vulnerable and sharing your tears with us. And I think a lot of people are suffering right now, humans and non-humans alike. And it's really easy to be desensitized because the system wants that. I think that when you're able to share your vulnerabilities and your tears. I know for me, it taps into my own heart and it allows me to grieve alongside you and not stay in this detached place. I mean, it's really, it's difficult to take it all in and to keep going every day when there is so much to work for and there aren't a lot of wins. And, you know, the stories that you've been sharing with us 
just one of those stories is devastating. And so to see the compounding effect of all of these devastations, I just have that much more love and respect for you to hear that you're not only able to connect with your vulnerability and your pain, but also that you get up every day and you keep going and you see a regenerative future and you're extremely engaged. And one thing that really sparked me was this call out culture of what you were explaining when people go, well, do you drive a car? Do you fly a plane? And it's not necessarily the people, it's the system. And I think as our movements and intersections among movements grow, that we are witnessing an increasing diversity of people gathering and awakening together, which is beautiful. But it's inevitable that conflict will also arise among us. What are your thoughts on why horizontal hostility takes such a stronghold within movements of resistance? How can we honor our unique positionalities and biases and sufferings without letting them escalate into restricting divisions within movements and instead redirect all that energy and fire towards working for our shared goals? Yeah, I think that it's just important to have self-care. <laughs> for me, it's hanging out with my um, little one. I have a four-year-old and she really has put my life into perspective. The whole water is life, mini wachoni, water of life. Uh, it literally means, you know, how how water is the first life. And everything stems from that, around that. And that is one thing that regardless of how different we are, different in the way we see ourselves as far as color, religion, age, background, you know, all of these different ways that people kind of get categorized and kind of get put into boxes. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day, we're all humanity and we all need the same things to survive, which is water to drink and clean air to breathe and soil to grow food. There's no way around it. There's no denying that humanity is so much more similar than we could have ever even maybe wanted to admit to and it's this square thinking that got us in these problems in the first place putting us in boxes and labeling everyone and you know acting like humanity is above the system or around the system when we in fact are a part of the system we are here in it just like every creature from the smallest ant you know to the biggest animal whatever that may be out there we are we are part of a cycle that isn't a cliche thing to say when we talk about you know the circle of life and I think a big part of what we have to gain again collectively is respect we and I say we because we're all in it together whether we're in agreement with the industry or not we have lost respect as humanity uh, for ourselves and it shows because if you don't respect yourself, how in the world are you going to respect the smallest ant? How are you going to respect a wetland, respect wildlife, respect all of the things that are happening around us that are negative? And we've lost that respect that used to exist. And, and I know not all of us have that traditional knowledge still exists, but it doesn't exist in enough people 
for a large scale understanding of what it means to be truly connected. And I can see why. I mean, I grew up in rural communities. I grew up in North Dakota. I'm in Montana now. Wide open spaces, being on the land. I love laying down in the grass and looking up at the stars. I love being outside, listening to the birds. I love being next to the water, listening to the waves, gently lapping up on the shore. But so many people don't have that or they have to go on a vacation to get that and it's only temporary. And I can see how there's been a huge disconnect with reality. Reality is not television, is not hustling from nine to five. That's a false reality that's been created in this market-driven system to say you have to do this in order to survive. You have to work yourself to death to provide for your children if you want to pay for healthcare bills because we've given so much power to money. And when you really get down to it at the end of the day, it actually has no power because the power lies in the individual being able to go out and see where they can dig up a turnip, in my case, or where they can find the wild berries and, and, and different wild foods wherever other people are located. I mean, all of the stuff that we have today that is processed and that you can buy frozen in a store has nothing to do with the reality of where that came from. There are people in the cities that are children that think that, you know, stuff comes from a grocery store and it doesn't go beyond that. You can get in your car and you can drive to work and you can sit in a building and you work all day and you get back in your car and you drive home where you don't even have to hardly ever be outside. And there's climate controlled systems where you can have heating and you can have air conditioning. And I think that that's all part of this capitalistic model of living that has been all consuming, especially in the United States. And people, if they would just stop to take a minute to think about who's being impacted by those kinds of comforts that we have, because they're not free. They, there are people that are dying to have those comforts. There are people that are suffering that we might have those comforts. And there is so much beauty on this planet and there's so much food available for everyone that is available but instead we're just a society of waste and throw away and no respect no respect for ourselves so no of course we don't respect our ecosystem I think that it's really sad but it's more than that it's our problem as humanity and we have to own up to it collectively and face it and we have to take a stand against the industry and say, why are they even allowed to produce the things that they do? Why are they allowed to produce gas-guzzling vehicles when they know we're facing a climate crisis? Why isn't there an entire fleet of you know, solar-powered plug-in vehicles that we can afford that people can have if they need to drive from point A to point B? Why aren't community gardens taught in every single school? Why is our history still being dictated by somebody else's history where indigenous cultures are lied about in history books? Like all of these things are changing. They are coming to a head, but it's not going to continue to change until people are willing to accept the fact that we messed up and are going in the wrong direction. And if we really truly want to save ourselves collectively, we will give in to the fact that we're all the same at the end of the day. And that we've given false power to money 
and that we've let somebody else take over and control our lives, we can be happier. We can be healthier. It's really sad that people actually leave the United States, for example, to go to other countries to slow down, to have a better pace of life, because the United States is the model of capitalism that all others want to model themselves after. And it's really sickening to come to that realization that companies shouldn't even be allowed to make the things that you use to clean your house, open your cupboard, look under your sink. How many toxic things exist in there that don't have to be there? How many things do you see that are one-time use things? Oh, use it and throw it away. Where do people think when you throw things away, where do they think it goes? It just disappears and it's no longer an issue? That's the whole out of sight, out of mind thing. And it's, it's not the case. It goes to a landfill or ends up in the ocean. It ends up somewhere as garbage. And people can look at their own footprint as an individual and say, holy cow, I'm not only going to change my lifestyle, but I'm going to push back on the industry and I'm going to push back on the government and I'm going to tell them that it is not okay not to give us choices and alternatives. In fact, more than choices and alternatives don't even make the things that are making us sick. They shouldn't be allowed to. But at the end of the day, again, it comes back to how much money they can make and how much profit they can make. And you only need to look as far as your toaster. <laughs> and I like to use that as an example because there's all these toasters this day and age. And they just like break down after a couple of years. And it's funny because my mom has a toaster from like 30 years ago. And it's a good, hearty, steel toaster that is like totally operating just fine. But it's like they make these new products to be cheap. They make them so that you'll have to dispose of them in a few years because they'll break down. Look at your cell phones. Oh my gosh, how crazy has this industry gotten? It's like, oh, you need an upgrade. You need an upgrade. You need an S700. You need an iPhone 5000. <laughs> I don't I don't know what number they're up to now but it's constant when it comes to technology and if this is the technology that's being shared with us well then you better bet that they have the technology to create things that aren't harmful but they choose not to use it because they might not make as much money in the airline industry we know for a fact that if these companies would fly a percentage higher or take a different route or use an alternative fuel they would be able to cut down on all kinds of pollution problems. They would be able to cut down on chemtrails that are left in the skies. But they're not willing to do it because it'll cost them. They won't make more money. They might even lose money. That's why they won't do it. Even though it can help our planet and, 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 and make our environment better, they're not willing to do it because of the profit margin. And that's sick. It is. It's, it's sick. It's sickening. It's creating sickness in our culture and our earth and thank you so much for connecting so many dots of the system from these large issues that we're facing down to looking under your sink and seeing just the immense amount of toxins that were being sold to quote clean things uh it's it's complete madness really and it is systemic. It's really in every level of our lives, or at least the lives that we're being sold, that this is the way we have to survive and just keep your head down and don't look outside and don't really see the consequences, but just keep buying, buying, buying as if 
we can buy our way out of this as it's just it is an earth crisis it's absolutely i mean an ecological crisis but it is this crisis of the mind and another thing that i that came up for me while you're speaking is just even the idea of peak oil and the fact that we're continuing to not only extract but actually extract more and more and more as we're reaching the edge of the cliff as we're seeing climate change as we're seeing glaciers melt even faster and faster we go faster and faster with oil extraction and i know many contend that we are reaching peak oil for instance there's a large swath of foreign companies that have begun to pull their investments out of the alberta tar sands due to operational cost and unstable market prices but yet the inseparable entity that is government and corporate oil just continue to deny this reality. You know, not only do they broadcast that the success and the necessity of fossil fuel extraction will continue unabated, but they continue to exert their power to ensure such insanity by deregulating public lands to oil development. You know, I was reading, for example, the Trump administration rescindment of the 2015 rule calling for disclosures on the types of chemicals used in fracking fluids. Just with that in mind, I was wondering if you could speak about the underlying systemic forces, which you have started to talk about, that dictate the trajectory of fracking tar sands and LNG. But how do you foresee the future of fracking and oil development in North America evolving in the context of peak oil, you know, and the current political madness? that we're in? Well, yeah, that's great because what I have seen actually and what we've all seen in the industry is a downturn in the amount of profits and the amount of oil that's actually being produced in all of it. I mean, even this Dakota Access Pipeline, they were like disheartened with the turnaround that they're getting. They're supposed to be getting... X amount of money or supposed to make the economy bound by this much and it's actually not. And so I think it's really important for people to understand that level of their own insanity. They're making increased blown up figures because they want to have these profits when in reality the profits aren't going on. They're coming to a downturn and I think that people really need to understand the reality behind it and Um, fracking specifically. It's not like the old days. It's not like Beverly Hillbillies where you shoot a hole in the ground and oil comes spewing up. It's extreme energy extraction. And the reason we call it that, the tar sands and other oil development, is because the amount of energy that it takes to get it out either equals or overshadows the amount of energy that you actually receive from it. In the tar sands, it takes three barrels of water for every one barrel of oil. That doesn't make any sense. In the frack fields all around the country, you're seeing devastation in communities at unprecedented scales because they have to dig down anywhere from eight to 10,000 feet. And then they have to drill horizontally for up to two miles and create these mini earthquakes in this shale, crack it open and put profits down in there like sand and chemicals, anywhere between 500 and 2,000 of them, and to squeeze out 
the oil that's left. Squeeze it out and then get rid of the natural gas that's on top in North Dakota's case because we don't have the pipeline infrastructure and they don't want to pay for it because the cost of natural gas is so low right now. I see it as a dying company. I see it as a dying industry. It's the wrong way forward. It's not a bridge feel. That's another problem too where they were touting it. I mean, even Hillary Clinton was touting natural gas as a bridge fuel. And in fact, the whole thing was an attack around carbon dioxide because people realized, oh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is actually bad for us. It's it's a greenhouse gas that's throwing off our systems. Well, instead of looking further into other greenhouse gases, they said, okay, let's go to natural gas. Let's jump to a bridge fuel. Let's do fracking. Now we have a problem with ethane and methane emissions. And those greenhouse gases are 26 times more potent than carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And now North Dakota is like a huge bubble of methane. Like it's a methane hotspot in the world because of the fracking. And so it's these false solutions. And they all revolve around economic development and capitalism and money. So hitting them in the pocketbook, hitting them where it hurts the most. That's why we started working on divestment campaigns. That's why we have this website you can go to called Mazaska Talks. Um, Mazaska in Lakota means money. And so moneytalks.org. And you can find that the investment campaigns have been wildly successful. And they are all over the world working where people are taking their money out of the banks. Stockholders are taking their money away from, you know, these corporations that are practicing all of these terrible things because we found a way to bring back our own power. We have found that they don't, they're not all powerful. It's not just the way it is. We have to wake up and realize our own strength and our own power that we have as individuals And it might be just a small little bit out of that whole bigger bit. But when the entire network of human beings are doing these things collectively, it is making a huge difference and a huge shift in the way these companies think and the way they operate. They want to keep telling us it's all about supply and demand. All right, well, we'll take our money out of these banks. We'll take our money away from the banks that are funding these major projects because they don't just get this money out of anywhere. It's not just like, poof, the money's there. They're using our money that we put into banks that they're leveraging to make these multi-billion dollar projects work. And they can't use our money if we put it into a local community credit union. It frustrates the heck out of them when we do that because it takes away their power and it gives us back our power. People just need to realize that we have so much more power than we're misled to believe. We have to collectively look look it right in the face, look at the problem, and not say it's somebody else's problem. Not say somebody else is going to save the world or, oh, that's not my issue. My life has nothing to do with that because that is a flat-out lie. If anyone in this world believes that their life has nothing to do with environmental problems, health problems, social problems, they're just lying to themselves. We're all connected in that sense, whether we like it or not. And so, you know, collectively, we have to join together to say, all right, 
life doesn't have to be this way. We can take back our power and make things better. And it can start with putting a plant in the window and starting your own garden. You know, it has to start somewhere. People have to do the little things, all the tools in the toolbox. And the little things I consider are like recycling and, you know, switching to LED bulbs and trying to curb your own energy consumption. You know, those are all the little things that could be done. But on a larger scale, it's not renewable energy alone that's going to save us, especially not large scale. We need small scale distributed systems of wind and solar that are on each and every single house in this entire country. Okay, so not large scale, small scale distributed. But more than that, until we face the brunt cause of the problem, which is capitalism, which is continued growth, which is the raping and pillaging of native lands to, you know, take over by corporate interests, we're not going to change anything. We have to be able to look injustice in the eye and say, I might have been a part of it, but now I'm changing. And that is when we're going to be able to heal and rebuild our foundation. Because the foundation we have now, particularly here in the United States, is crumbling. And it's crumbling because it was built upon horrific, terrible injustices. And it needs to crumble and come apart so that we can rebuild it the way that it should have been in the first place. Built upon trust and strength and equality. And that's the only way that we're going to get away from capitalism and this madness that is continued growth. Because it never was and never will be sustainable. just uh it makes so much sense it everything how you've described this transition away from 
the inner denials or this uh, hesitation, this resistance towards looking injustice straight in the face, no matter um, what, you know, no matter the consequences, yes, life will change, uh, but nobody's going to do it for us. Mm -hmm. If we want a different world, we have to be actively engaged with actually shifting that. And I think hearing you talk about the divestment campaigns, that those are actually working, that when we do take our money away from extractive industries, they're not going to keep extracting oil if nobody's paying for it, if they're not making a profit. So it's, it's a very, you know, almost simple cause and effect relationship and, Yes, this idea of personal responsibility and small grassroots collectives that are decentralizing power, decentralizing the power over power in terms of, uh, you know, renewable power. Because I remember speaking with Cherie Foytlin and, you know, she was discussing around her community that there's so many skilled people that work on oil rigs and it's not about them working for another extraction company to build solar panels. It's about them building solar panels for their own community, not so that they can just be slave labored into a renewable energy system either. You know, part of my question is, do you see any of these things being priorities or do you think that they all kind of need to happen simultaneously and different team members in this movement take on different parts all at the same time? If we're kind of looking at this as a domino effect, what would you say are the first dominoes that we want to hit over? Well, that's just it. I think that in in as human beings, we often let our egos get in the way, whether we realize it or not. I do it. You do it. Everyone does it, whether we want to admit it or not. And the thing is, is that there isn't a start for the domino tomorrow. It's already begun. We just have to step back and look at the big picture and see this just transition, as we call it, is already happening because of all of the work on the ground that people are already doing because so many people are waking up and recognizing the necessity to change. And if we think about it, how many people were talking about climate change and fighting back 10 years ago? Well, I can tell you that it's not nearly as many as there are today. And 10 years, yeah, it's a long time, earth time. A hundred years is a long time. That's a lifespan. And we think, holy smokes, our lifetimes, you know, are, are, are nothing compared to earth time. It's literally a blink of an eye compared to the billions of years that this planet has been rotating around. And we have to realize that we're just one little ripple in that grand scheme of things. And so we have to take our part, our action Whatever it is we can do as individuals or collectively with partnerships to do whatever we can while we're here, which is such a short amount of time, so that what our effect is leads to like a positive feedback loop for 200 years from now. What is my tiny little, you know, place in this world that I had here 
going to have, what kind of impact and effect will that have a couple hundred years from now? We have to think big picture and long term and globally to understand the real consequences or the real victories of our actions as individuals. And we have to be okay with the fact that we cannot control everything, that we're not going to change everything overnight. We're not going to be able to necessarily save the world in our own lifetime, but we're going to have an impact no matter what. So we have to think to ourselves, what kind of impact will that be? What do I want my impact, my footprint in this life to be, even when I'm not here? That's the hard part, I think, for a lot of people. That's why people get burnt out in the movement. And that's why some people just turn away from it because they think it's so overwhelming, the amount of change that we're trying to create. And that's ego. You can't let that get in the way of totally stopping you from doing whatever it is so the path that we're each on can go wherever we choose it to go it's just a matter of having more and more people wake up and choosing to go on a path that's less destructive and a lot of times that doesn't happen unless people are educated about the problems and the the situations and are looking at the really 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 big picture not just in my backyard you know the NIMBY effect it's okay if you first learn about the industry because of a project in your backyard, but then go ahead and take the time to find out who else is impacted by this same project. And you'll probably find that it has a worldwide reach. And I think just opening hearts and minds to seeing the big long-term picture is what is really needed from my perspective in the work that I do, the places I've been to, the people I've met. It's keeping that alive and that, hope alive just hope if there's only one thing a person can do when they wake up the next day is start with hope (laughs) and that'll eventually snowball into taking action into doing stuff that impacts communities impacts entire neighborhoods and impacts the world so I don't have the advice and the you know This is what's going to save the world other than to say that it just takes baby steps and hope from each individual to make that difference. Well, I think that was the perfect advice is that hope is the first domino. You know, maybe it's a a combination of awakening and the education and then getting up every day with this, this active hope that we can change the world around us, but not having the ego of we're going to save the world or we're going to shift this enormous juggernaut overnight or potentially even in our lifetimes. But it's important to remember to continue feeding that path forward in our hearts with with hope. Yeah, it's a funny word. It's something that I usually (laughs) don't feel often. But the way you said it, I'm like, well, hope does sound pretty good. But usually I'm one of those people that it's like, hope? Oh, gosh, what's that? You know, it's a feeling. It's a feeling. It doesn't have to be categorized. It doesn't have to be put in a box. It doesn't even have to be the word you use. It's that feeling that you want to strive for better because you want better, better. Think more circular. Think more 
are cyclical. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just too, there's too many boxes that have created too many problems. And it's that linear thinking that has gotten us into trouble in the first place. And we have to definitely think more circular. Candy, I am so in awe of you. And I could spend hours just asking you questions and listening to your thoughts. And I really hope to have you back on the show so that we can continue going into more and more. Um, But I want to just, you know, ask if there's anything that you'd like to share with the audience that can help them support your work, support the Indigenous Environmental Network, or to look into more campaigns, any resources, websites, you know, a jumping off point for people who have just been sharing this conversation with us and want to engage more fully? Sure. People can visit our website at www.ienearth.org. We also have um, a sister website that we run that is usually based on a specific campaign that we have going on at any given moment, and that is www.indigenousrising.org. So those two sites are the places to go to both donate and to find out about the various campaigns that we're working on at any given moment because there's never a shortage of work that needs to be done when it comes to environmental and climate justice and just transition work across the United States and across the planet. And that's where we work, <laughs> from the grassroots, the national to the international, and all the way back to the grassroots again. So please visit our sites and support us that way. And of course, people can reach out to me too, you know, on the various social platforms. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter. So is our organizations. And you can find us there if you'd like to follow us. Well, I'm following you, and I'm so happy to have (laughs) had you and all the crew of IEN in my life the last few years. You have all taught me so much and cracked open my heart to a level that I didn't really know before then. And so I'm grateful and just so, so warm-hearted for you all at, at IEN and see the work that you do and the integrity in which you do it and it's refreshing and it's exciting and I think you know as we've talked about this conversation it's so important to support each other and to build relationships for the long run so thank you so much Candy well thanks for doing this Ayana bye-bye
Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. If you enjoyed this show, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at forthewild.world so that we could keep bringing you these stories. And also consider going over to iTunes and leaving us a comment. Thank you so much. I want to thank our research director, Madison Mogolski, and our producers, March Young and Reach Out. The music you heard today was Mandan Heartbreak Song by Keith Bear. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. Grassy shore is drying close to burning, crying out for water as the seasons turn in. Sweet smell the pine, tall western cedar drifting on the wind through the mountains like a river. Sky on the concrete trails and wide through the canyons dark and wide. The sounds of people talking, words of blue and gray, smells of doors and windows closed against the day. Sweet smell of the pines, tall western cedar drifting on the wind through the mountains like a river.